0: Friday profile. In the world of journalism, you get those who shine and excel, those who investigate, those who don't let go, and uh, those who bring the story to you, making sure that those in power are held to account or those perhaps committing crimes are also exposed. And this is someone I've worked with for many, many, many years, and then she went away for a while and we all got very sad, but she's coming back to 702 land. Good afternoon, Mandy Wiener.
1: Good afternoon, White. So good to speak to you.
0: (laughs) It's lovely to have you on 702. How are you feeling?
1: Um, Yeah, sure. Um, It's been a a crazy few hours since the announcement. I've got so many messages from people on social media and just all people that I haven't heard from in so long saying that um, they're excited. So I'm really excited about, about coming back to 702. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, we're also very excited. All right, how do you juggle being a mom a wife, and a relenting investigative mm-hmm. reporter? I think that's something I've wanted to ask you for years.
1: <laughs> it's like a million dollar question. Listen, um, you know, I, I need a disclaimer here because I fully expect my children to come breaking down the door crying hysterically uh, at any point uh, during this interview um, because that's pretty much how my life has been going over the past few months. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's, it's so difficult i have uh, I really I had to work hard at, at finding the balance, and you know I speak about this um, publicly a lot, Ray, about the fact that there, there isn't really a balance. You, you never—it's um, it, a myth. Um, you know, you never actually find that balance between um, being a a mum and particularly working from home and having a, a, a full-on career. Um, I've read a lot about it. You know, people like Ariana Huffington, um, all of those joyans who have so much wisdom about it. Uh, but but it's an incredibly difficult balance and it's something that you work at constantly. And um, I rely a lot on other uh, working moms to, to speak to them about their experiences. So, so it's difficult. And you know, I can ask you the same question. You've got a a daughter. You know, you've been through it. People never ask me
0: that question. In fact, I remember (laughs) once reading the 1 o'clock news and the producer holding my child in the back room and my baby was screaming and hearing through the headphones my child crying and thinking, I better get through this. My child needs me. So there you go. Mandy, you've had an extensive career. I mean, I think it was about 14 years at Eyewitness News. Take us through from day one to where you are now. You weren't always that investigative reporter, were you?
1: No, I wasn't. So, you know, my very first job on, um, on Eyewitness News, um, was writing for the website. I did for a long time. And then at the same time, my first job on 702 was call screening overnight. So I would come in on a Friday night at like two o'clock in the morning on a, on a Saturday morning and would answer phone calls for, for hours of people phoning in overnight. And I did that for a long time. Um, and, you know, that was really my, my first job. And one of the other things I did for a long time was writing traffic for Akiana Statue and for Harry Sideropoulos on, um, it was then 94.7. So I did that for a long, long time, writing traffic and call screening overnight and producing the sports show on a Saturday afternoon with, with Docky Docras And then I begged Katie Katapodis for a job. I kept nagging her. And the very first story she sent me out on was to interview residents of Houghton about water cuts. So, I mean, what could possibly go wrong on a on a story like that, you know? <laughs> so, I was in Houghton going door-to-door interviewing people about water cuts. And I had a microphone with a 702 mic flag on it. And I was uh, ringing a doorbell and a car pulled up next to me. And a guy got out of the car and he pointed a gun at me. And he oh. said me the keys to your car and all of your valuables and I, I don't know what what inspired it but i hit record on my on my recording device so i recorded this whole hold up that was happening um and he looked at me and he saw the microphone flag and he said "Are oh, you a reporter and i said yes so he gave me back all of my belongings apologized and said sorry i'm looking for somebody else and disappeared so I had, oh I had I had some recording and they, John Robbie landed up playing it on the breakfast show and it was on the front page of the Star and Katie gave me a job at EWN. <laughs>
0: wow that's incredible but then after that you were what 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 sort of stories did you go on to because we know how you landed up but i would think you would have had to gain more of the trust of your editor and knowing katie katapodis she was very particular about who went on air yeah so i worked i
1: worked so hard in those in those years um uh, you know from I would stick my hand up for for every breaking news story there was. You know, I was obsessed with with breaking news. Um, And I just wanted to be on the radio and be the first person at every crime scene. Um, So I did a lot of breaking news, just running around, being on crime scenes, at protests, um, anything that was happening. I'd I'd always be the first person to to stick my hand up. I spent a lot of time in Khutsong, in Merafong when there was that big dispute over the provincial boundaries and I spent months there. So that was one of my first big stories that um – um uh, that I covered for a prolonged period of time. And then just for, for a few years, you know, I just did a lot of breaking news stories. I thought that I was invincible um at that stage of my career. Obviously now in in retrospect and with the the, the, the maturity that comes over time, I realize now that perhaps I was a little bit um naive and foolish. Um but I didn't think twice of, you know, going straight into any kind of of crime scene or kind of violent standoff. It was just what we
0: did. Did you ever get into a situation where you thought, oops, I've gone too far, I'm in trouble?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, there were a few times, you know, late at night in places where I probably shouldn't have been that I would never tell my mother about. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I remember once I was in the, the basement of the Newark Street taxi Rank. And there were people shooting on one side and people shooting on the other side, and I was kind of like in the middle somewhere. And I just thought, what am I doing here? So um, yeah, I mean, there were there were lots of incidents like that, you know, where where you thought, oh, this is this could be a bit dicey, but of course, nothing's ever going to happen to me because I'm a journalist and I've got a microphone.
0: Yeah. Doing crime, I mean, covering crime rather, did you ever get to the point where you thought there's more to just being a crime reporter? Or did you know from day one that this is your beat and you want to see where this takes you?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think that I did crime rather than covered it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I never set out to, to be necessarily a, a crime reporter. I was always interested in it. I always thought that I was going to be a war reporter, that I was going to end up being a foreign correspondent somewhere. Um, but it was covering the Brett Kibble murder um, that I think was the change for me. So um, after Brett Kibble was killed and then um, after Glenn Agliotti was, was charged and then, of course, the Jackie Salibi case, which happened, I spent a lot, a lot of time in court. Um, and, and followed both of those cases for a very long period of time, you know, nearly two years in, in the South Gauteng High Court. So I, I, really began to understand, um, criminal process, um, you know, the judicial process and started following the NPA much more closely. Um, and, and that took me into more of a kind of, th- Kind of in-depth, investigative um, kind of position as as a journalist, and it went beyond just the the, the one sort of crime incidents and really trying to delve into it and get a better understanding of of the psyche of people and the relationships um, between the police, organized crime, big business, and politicians, and unpacking all of that.
0: Going to Killing Kebble, your book, Killing Kebble, and there was that, that, that murder, I think it was Glen Hove or that area where Kebble was killed and he was shot. Where were you on that night? Did you cover, did you go out to that story? What was your, your, your initial reaction when you heard the news?
1: Yeah, so, uh, it's an interesting story because, um, I was living very close to where the shooting happened, which is on what, it's Melrose Birdhaven on, on what's now become known as, as the Kebble Bridge to many people in Joburg. Um, and I was living quite nearby, but, uh, it was a different time. You know, we, we didn't have social media the way that we have it now. Uh, Twitter wasn't really as much of a thing. So we actually ended up missing the shooting. Um you know, as, as, a news, as a newsroom, we missed the whole incident, um, which we don't, we don't like to talk about. Um, but I remember getting a call very early in the morning from Lynn O'Connor, who was on the news desk, saying, um, Brett Kibble's been shot, you need to get to the scene. And I got there very quickly um, because I was so close and I started doing live crossings. Um, for EWN. And I'll never forget because I was driving a, a little Red Runnix at the time and yeah. somebody phoned in to the breakfast show and said, I've just seen the car, the shooter's car. It was there last night and it's back again. And it's parked at the crime scene. And it was my car that was actually parked at the crime scene. So
0: everybody <laughs> thought it was
1: me, that was the shooter that was was back on the scene.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. All right, let's take it from there, then, because I remember going to your book launch for Killing Kebel and having a long and maybe even awkward conversation with Mikey Schultz, thinking, this guy, this guy is the trigger man. What happened after that, after that initial day, that, it, that initial killing? You seem to really get your, your your claws into the story, and you met all of those involved.
1: Entirely sure how it happened, but I, I just stuck onto the story and I just kept following it and, and started to unpack it. Um, and then I, I followed the trial, and through that I began to gain the trust of um, Mikey Schultz and the people who were involved. And I, I was so fascinated by the story, and I'd always wanted to write a book, so I I, I just decided that I was going to do a book about this this thing. And I was very fortunate that I was and very, very privileged that I was introduced to uh, Terry Morris at Pan Macmillan. And uh, I told her that I wanted to write a book and I'd never written anything more than a magazine article. I mean, I, I think I was 27 or 26 at the time and uh, I just thought, well, I'm going to do this. And uh, I wrote this book and I didn't expect the reaction at all. Um, but it really just resonated with people because everyone knew someone. There was there was a personal connection everywhere. It was the story of the shooters told by the shooters in in their own voices. Um, so I think that it's, it it really struck a nerve for a lot of people because at that stage also there, there weren't as many books being written by frontline journalists who were really on the front face. Uh, and I think that's why it, it just did, did surprisingly well.
0: Hmm. Our guest, our portfolio interview today, Mandy Wiener, the author of Killing Kebble and Underworld Exposed. You also had Vusi Pakole and Mandy Wiener, my second initiation. You've had quite a few books. You've also had One Tragic Night, Oscar Pistorius, Behind the Door. And then you're offering Mandy Wiener's Ministry of Crime. That's quite a, you said you started out with one book and you had only written a magazine article, but that's quite something.
1: Um, yeah, I, yeah, and I really enjoyed it now. So, so I have spent the last few years, um, working on, on books more than, you know, obviously being off radio. Um, I've been focusing on that. Um, finishing off on another book now, which is due out later this year about whistleblowers, uh, that I've been working on speaking to, to South African whistleblowers. Um, and I really like the format of, of, of writing books because you can, write much longer and get into into people's stories and really fully understand them. And there's a lot of creativity involved in, in relaying those stories. But at the same time, you know, I, I absolutely love radio and I miss it so much. and so I'm so happy to, to have the opportunity to be back. Mm.
0: All you're coming back. That's the thing about radio. Do you find it a little bit frustrating? Because sometimes, say for instance, if you do the Madeira Port, you've got seven or eight stories and you've got to be quick. Would you perhaps prefer at some point to sit down with someone, like I'm sitting down with you now, and unpack what they've been talking about and maybe get details of their stories and do it in long form?
1: Such a a great question because... But funny enough, on radio, I absolutely love the fast pace of breaking news. So I love being in the newsroom when something's breaking and getting on air and sharing it with people and getting analysis and setting the the agenda. Which is why the midday report appeals to me so much, and I've always felt so comfortable in that role. Um, I, you know when I, when I write a, a book i can absolutely sit down with people for hours and, and listen to them um, but, the, but for me the beauty of radio is is the pace and it's about um, painting that picture with sound and, and beautiful use of sound and texture and really taking people to to the scene I've always felt as a radio journalist, that I'm a representative of the listener that's, that's on the scene, and I'm asking questions on behalf of people. Um, so so for me, that pace of, of breaking news, there's no format like radio.
0: Yeah. We'll go back to killing Kebble and just listening to what you're saying there. Did you have a point where the shooters came to you and said, this is what we did? Did you wait for the outcome of the court case? How did that all unravel?
1: Yeah, we, we waited for the outcome of, of the court case, um, before we published. Uh, that was absolutely crucial because I just felt that, that, that needed to happen. Remember the, the shooters took the witness stand and testified about it all. It was the most astonishing, um, circumstances because here you had, um self confessed killers on, on their own version, standing up in a court of law, giving testimony about how the gun failed to go off twice, how the car overheated, how Kibble drove to his own death, um and and how ultimately he was shot and then what happened after that. So it was astonishing that we had this testimony in, in open court. So we waited for the trial to end um before we could publish. Um so I mean, obviously that was important to you know to, to close the circle.
0: Yeah. it's so one or two SMSs here, and one reads, how does Mandy do her research? And I'm thinking of Ministry of Crime. How do you do your research? Is it all source-based? I mean, you can't exactly go down to Long Street in Cape Town, or maybe you can, and meet with a whole lot of people and sort of infiltrate what's going on down there.
1: So for me, what's really important to do is to, to, to speak to people. Um, and building relationships with people. So that, that for me is the most important thing and, and, and gaining their trust and, and really building relationships. And, and that's the way it works. So sure, you can go down to Long Street. You can go to Bedford View. You can go and chat to people. Um, but the way to really get into the heart of the story is to build those relationships over a long period of time and, and to manage those relationships and also by reputation as a journalist. All you have is your, your credibility and your, your reputation. So it's so important to, to look after that. And, and to nurture it. Um, so that's, that's probably how I do my research. I'm not great at doing you know, company deed searches and um, you know, following the money and bank statements and that stuff. I find it like, utterly boring and inane. Um, but there's absolutely a place for that in investigative journalism. There are such amazing journalists in the country that, that do work like that. For me, it's about people and getting people to talk.
0: All right, let's take a call. Let's go to Beth in Ravonia. Hi, Beth.
2: Yes, hi. Um, I read Mandy's book at the time, and I found it incredibly fascinating. And last night, I started watching a documentary. I can't tell you what it's called or whether it's on D S T V or Showmax, but it's a documentary on the killing, and uh, Marty Schultz himself and a number of the other players um, speak out in that documentary. Uh, Mike um, describes uh, the process of the three attempts at the killing in technical detail. He's very emotional when he tells that story. Um, and it covers, um, it includes in this documentary, Greg um, um, Kibble's father and brother who don't believe that it was, now it's obviously done uh, recently with a particular documentary and they totally don't believe that it was a suicide request. Um, so I just wanted to say, Mandy, I don't know if you've seen that documentary, but you might want to go and look for it. It's really very fascinating and, yeah, uh, uh, you know, a real good view into the underworld. Mm. Mandy? Sure, yeah, it's called, um, it's called 204.
1: Uh, And it was uh, a really good documentary made by Warren Batchelor Um, and um, the shooters, yeah, they they were involved. And it's incredible because they they give their own interviews and and testimony about what actually happened.
0: Yeah. Beth in in Ravonia, thanks for your call. Mandy, I want to turn to the Oscar Pistorius case as well. One Tragic Night, you you, you wrote that with uh, our former colleague Barry Bateman. That was also a very interesting time in your career.
1: Um, it was a crazy time in my life because I just had my, my first child. Um so um when the trial started. So it was it was yeah, it was it was a very, very busy time um when when that trial was was underway. But I'll never forget that that morning um of of Valentine's Day in, in twenty thirteen when um we got that phone call to say that it had happened and my my phone just rang off the hook um, from CNN, BBC, Sky, everybody just wanting to, to do an interview um, with somebody with, with a, a local perspective. Uh, and in the EWN newsroom, it, we were just picking up phones and putting down phones for, for three or four days. Um, yeah. As journalists, we, we always prepared for what we thought would be the biggest story of, of our careers would be when, when Nelson Mandela died. And, and this obviously happened before, and uh, we just never expected a, a story of this scale. It was absolutely mind blowing to see the the scale of interest from international media, and and what a big story it was. It was it was really one of, one of the most memorable um, experiences, just for the sheer interest and in, in scale of of the story.
0: Your thoughts on what happened that night I remember Barry Bateman he would phone me on a daily basis saying Ray I've just found out this and I've just found out that your thoughts on what happened that night it's uh, I sort of think it's the million dollar question that many people have been asking Oscar up to this day says well he didn't do this and didn't do that he is spending time for this but does that sort of remain one of the unanswered questions or do perhaps everyone know anyway?
1: So, of course, this was fully ventilated in, in court um, to the extent, to, to, to the minutiae, where everybody in the country became a forensic expert. Um, and, and in the book that I wrote with Barry, we actually, you know, we, we tried to write the seminal book on this, um, where we really go into all of the evidence and unpack it from every angle. So it's a long book. But it's very, very detailed. Um, so I do feel like all of that came out on, on, um, on the pages. It came out in court. There was a TV station, you know, you can't forget that people really understood this. But I, I do feel that the court of law and the court of public opinion, particularly of this case, are, are two completely different things. So the finding in the court of law was very different to The finding in in the court of public opinion and and every time i speak about this case publicly people are so emotionally invested in it they all have a perspective they all are absolutely sure that they know exactly what happened um and i very often will do a poll of people in the room of people who think that you know you ask people the question and i bet you if you did the poll right now on air (laughs) if you ask people the question if they thought that Oscar knew that Reva was behind the door or if he thought that it was an intruder behind the door 99% of people all feel the same way and you can imagine what that way is
0: yeah yeah Mandy Wiener I am so looking forward to listening to you on 702 and seeing you in the newsroom as well and I wish you the best of luck for your show I cannot wait
1: Thank you so much, Ray. I, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, the, the Midday Report is it's got such a legacy. Um it's it's really a gender setting, it's fast paced, uh it's so newsy and, and there's so much um so many opportunities to speak to people, to, to newsmakers, to break news. So I'm really looking forward to it.
0: There we go. That's Mandy Weena, the new host of the Midday Report. Great to have you on seven oh two. Give it a week or two, and you'll be hearing her on this frequency. Best of luck to you, Mandy.